All right, welcome back to the Crimson Flag podcast, where we bring you a class-conscious analysis of historic and current events which are pertinent to the international working class movement. All right, so recently I had a discussion with Joseph Gregory Mahoney, and he is a professor of politics at East China Normal University in Shanghai. And our topics, they covered Chinese history from 1953 to 1976, roughly. Since the discussion reaches about the two-hour mark, I released this first half of the interview, and I'm going to release the second half at the end of the week. And the first half is going to cover the Great Leap Forward, the history right before it and after as well. And the second half will cover the Cultural Revolution. In the interview, Dr. Mahoney gives insight into his understanding of the Great Leap and the Cultural Revolution. So without further ado, here's part one of our interview. But before we begin here, I guess I just want to know, is there anywhere where people can check out your work or look you up or anything in that regard? Sure. Uh, you can Google me by my by my full name professionally, Joseph Gregory Mahoney, J-O-S-E-F, uh, M-A-H-O-N-E-Y. And um, you can look me up in Baidu. Um, and everything that I publish, uh, a lot of the media I do is available through LinkedIn, my LinkedIn page. Uh, and I welcome anyone who wants to um, who wants to connect or follow me there, um, and you can see what I'm up to and and what I'm thinking about. Um, shall we get started on on the? Yeah, absolutely. Feel free to begin. Um, yeah, I'll jump in when I feel like it. Okay. So as you mentioned, our topic today is looking at this this highly uh, uh, misunderstood and contested period of time uh, in China from 1966 to 1976. And um, b before we get uh, started with that, we should remember um, one of these old Marxist uh, principles. And uh, the, the American Marxist Frederick Jameson uh, put it best when uh, he opened his book, The Political Unconscious, with the exclamation, always historicize. And what this means is put things in their historical context, right? Um, so in order to, to put this into historical context, in order to talk about uh, what starts happening in 1956, we have to go back a little bit and figure out what was happening before, right? But the second thing we have to do is we need to ask ourselves, um, what is the theory and method guiding our discussion, right? Now, this seems like a ridiculously academic uh, question to, to ask, but it's it's very important uh, for a number of reasons uh, that I'll lay out to you very quickly. The period of time that we're describing, um, there's a leftist perspective, there's a rightist perspective, there's a Chinese Communist Party perspective, there's the left wing in the party, the right wing in the party, there's the Chinese Marxist who doesn't like the party. There are all these different perspectives on what happened at that period of time. And then in addition to this, there are all these perspectives among non-Chinese about what happened, right? And the general story that you hear in the West at least is that uh, starting with the Great Leap, we have this incredible left wing turn uh, this radical utopian but god-awful left-wing turn in Chinese history that resulted in great tragedy um, and that uh, was devastating to China. That's a dark period of its history and that it culminated, it, it led to a number of other problems in the 1960s, which then 
sparks the, the Cultural Revolution and then brings us all the way till the end of uh, what many people argue is the end of the Cultural Revolution, uh, 1976, right? From 66 to 76. So that's the general story. And whether or not you're left wing or right wing or, or Western, that's the general Western story. And in China, that's kind of the right wing story. The left wing story is a little different. It looks much more affirmatively on the Mao years and even to some extent the Great Leap uh, because they don't want to tar and feather their hero. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we have to do is realize that these are the dominant narratives that exist and um, we have to not make ourselves um, predisposed to stories that don't really fit a number of strange but absolutely verified facts. These are stories that are operating at the level of ideological uh, uh, competition. These are propagandistic stories. And I, I came to this to this uh, these insights that I'm going to share with you uh, after lecturing on this period of time for 10 years in Shanghai where I was really struggling to make sense of a number of facts that didn't add up. And then once I began to see <clears throat> what I thought was one way to make sense of them, then I was terrified by the, by the insight because it doesn't fit any of the stories, right? It doesn't fit the left-wing story or the right-wing story or the Western story, uh, but it does fit what actually happened. So then the question was, well, how can I, how can I tell this story? Uh, if I'm, if if it looks like I'm just making something up out of thin air, then that's really going to be difficult to to argue. Um, so then you start looking for, well, what's the what's the historical theory and method that I'm going to use to help legitimize this story, right? Because you can use different types of historical methods to reveal different aspects of of history, right? Mm -hmm. And interestingly, the method that I came to, um, the, the, the understanding, the, the, the historical method that I came to should have been apparent to me from the very beginning. And that is dialectical and historical materialism, <laughs> right? These central concepts in Marxism. And if we read that period of time through the theoretical and methodological lenses of dialectical and historical materialism, then what we find is a story that makes sense and leads us to where we actually end up in time, right? And as we can look past all the competing uh, propaganda and ideological narratives and really focus on facts. Okay, right. and that's what I want to do. And I, I want to say this: this is clearly going to sound like a revisionist history. And um, uh, my point here isn't to argue that this revisionist history is absolutely true, but rather to argue from a rather academic perspective that if we actually view this history from a Marxist historical method, this is what we find. Okay, and that is by itself its own legitimacy, whether or not it's actually 
the way history really played out. Right. Um, yeah, I guess just a quick comment um, before you continue. I know you just mentioned the different narratives that generally surround the Cultural Revolution. It is very interesting because even, I guess, what I would call the communist YouTube scene amongst people who are involved in making this kind of content, watching these kind of videos, even amongst us, there seems to be that view that either it was an ultra leftist turn or, um, you know, this was like the next greatest stage of the revolution. You know, it seems to be always between these two sides and it's, it just has to be like one or the other. Um, so I know we've talked in the past. I, I am very interested in your take. I will say that it's definitely unique. It's not a take that I've heard um, before. So I think people out there will be interested to hear it as well. Um, so yeah, we talked about some of the cultural narratives that are generally surrounding the way we talk about this. Um, so I guess where would you like to start um, with all this? Actually, where I'd like to start is in in uh, before World War II finishes, and the the point. So this is where we're going to historicize, right? We have to lay the groundwork uh, a little bit before we get to 1956. Mm-hmm. And the key point about World War II is that World War II begins as a as a war of the industrial age but it finishes as a war of the information age mm-hmm. okay and this is the this is the big transition that's taking place uh in in this historicist frame and what i mean by this is that the war starts off with who can produce the most guns the most tanks who can get the most people you know solve these but the war ends with who has the information so Who's got the Enigma machine? Who's cracking the German codes? Who's got radar? The Japanese don't, right? But above all, the information bomb, which in our case is the nuclear weapon, right? That's where we are able to find that scientific formula and then condense all of that power into one or two explosives, right? Which then ends it uh, once and for all. So it starts as a as an industrial war but it ends as an information war mm-hmm. and the point is the chinese uh communist leaders who are uh, at that point still uh struggling uh against japan in a in a uh, shaky alliance with the guomindang the nationalists um, they're not completely aware that the world has changed that only a few countries are firstly the united states germany but they're going to be soon out of the picture the UK, who's at the forefront, but also working closely with the United States, and then uh, Soviet Russia, or the Soviet Union. And um, so this is, this is the to, to lay the groundwork, this is the big change that's happened, is that we've now entered the information age where technology is, uh, and, and what we would consider to be high tech, uh, is the new uh, driver of uh, of um, the, the 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 underlying economic model, and who's going to be successful and competitive mm-hmm. in the years to come. So uh, we know, for example, um, uh, in, in sort of basic historical facts, that the communists defeat the Guomindang in 1949, and uh, uh, initially uh, the the Chinese are going to pursue the Guomindang into Taiwan. Uh, but the United States backstops Taiwan, so China takes that force and routes it through Korea. And then we have this long-term uh, historical dialectic between North Korea and Taiwan um, that uh, uh, where both sides have frustrated each other, uh, which continues to this day. Um, in 
1953, though, and this is the next key date for us, that's the year that the Soviet Union uh, initiates, helps China initiate the first five-year plan. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, a very important uh, development um, because they're going to use the Soviet-style planning, but they're also going to use uh, Soviet advisors um, and um, um, they start developing the infrastructure and uh, uh, heavy industry with uh, Soviet uh, uh, technology and, and uh, capital um, engineers building bridges, so forth and so on. But in 1956, there are two big things that happen. The first is uh, you have the, the so-called secret speech, the not-so-secret secret speech, mm -hmm. where Khrushchev uh, initiates de-Stalinization, right? And this caused a lot of trouble for China uh, because prior to that moment, China had been forced to co-brand, to use this term in a weird way, their revolution with Stalin's image. Um, but all of a sudden now, um, uh, Stalin is being demonized by the Soviet Union itself. And this is undermining the legitimacy of this revolution, which was still trying to consolidate itself in China, right? But the other side of it is that uh, Mao Zedong um, uh, personifies Marxism, and, and I don't agree with this, but he's he's speaking figuratively in this in this text, where he describe he says uh, when Khrushchev gives a speech, he says the Soviet Union will now stagnate and decline, and he says the reason for this is that they have thrown away the two swords of Marxism. Uh, Stalin threw away the, the sword of Lenin, which was the sword of revolution. And Khrushchev has now thrown away the sword of Stalin, which is the sword of uh, consolidating power and, and, and um, uh, imposing discipline and these sorts of uh, things. And in Mao's mind, this was a, a type of dialectical arrangement. You need, he says, uh, in, in another place, he says, every 10 years you need to basically wield the sword of linen. You need to knock down these obstacles that grow up uh, against progress. And you have to do this in the party, you have to do this in government, you have to do this in society, so that you can create those openings, so that you can continue to accelerate your development. Because really the whole point for having this type of system is to accelerate your development so you can close those gaps that exist between you and your competitors who pose existential threats to you. And this is, of course, the problem that China is trying to solve in so much as they're trying to solve, you know, this historical aggression from the foreign powers that had, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the old term is carved China up like a melon. Mm -hmm. So in this case, um, um, what we have is this idea that um, um, China will, um, Will, will firstly, uh, with, with Mao Zedong, he, he's, he argues that, that again, that, that the Soviet Union is going to stagnate because they no longer have the capacity to, to either knock down their own obstacles to progress um, uh, nor to really impose uh, the type of control that will be necessary uh, uh, for accommodating um, uh, accelerated growth and development. Mm -hmm. And... Um, but that's also the year, 1956, is also the year, there are several other things that happen 
with the Soviet Union and, and enter. But that's the year where China begins to suspect that the Soviets have misled them on the first five-year plan. Mm -hmm. And whether the Soviets did this as part of a conspiracy or um, maybe it wasn't such a conspiracy, maybe it was just what made sense to the Soviets, uh, maybe the Chinese were misled by their own idea of, of, of industrial development because they think they still live in an industrial world and not an information uh, age, so to speak. Um, but the, the concern starts to, to become that the Soviets have led China into a trap of becoming dependent on Soviet technology and capital. Mm -hmm. And that the intent here, whether it's a conspiratorial intent or not, that the that the desired outcome for the Soviet Union is that China will become a factory in the Soviet Empire or Soviet system, right? And so this starts to become a concern in 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 Beijing in 1956, uh, because remember, uh, the 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 Chinese Communist uh, Revolution is really a revolution that aims to find a solution to the national problem, okay? In other words, this problem um, that uh, uh, the Guomindang, the Nationalist Party, was unable to solve itself after the Xinhai Revolution in 1911, uh, and the communists are going to pose themselves as, a, as the solution, as the effective solution. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of communists un uncomfortable when we say, okay, well, this is a, a problem to the national, this is a solution to the national problem because we like to think of communism as a form of internationalism, but in opposed almost to like ideas of some uh, some people like opposed to these ideas of you know the national liberation or the you know democratic struggles of the past but really you see most successful revolutions tie themselves to the um the democratic struggles of the past so yeah well the thing is you know the the the, the problem you have to go back to is that lenin you know thought you know the, the old uh, iskra the spark that that if you had this uh, Soviet uh, revolution, that it would spark a global revolution mm -hmm. uh, because Marx held that you couldn't have socialism in one country. And then Stalin's going to reverse this by the late 1920s because he doesn't have a choice. Um, but uh, the early communist movement in China has, has still some of that internationalist flavor to it, even though that internationalism had really begun to fade in the Soviet Union by the late 1920s and it only really comes back but in a much different form um, with uh, the, the uh, what comes after World War II when they start constructing the Warsaw Bloc and these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But uh, but that's not the same type of internationalism that Lenin had in mind. Um, um, I guess just a quick, um, quick comment that I wanted to make because you're describing this as um, the USSR, if they knew it or not, they offered something to China where China would have been dependent on them, essentially. You know, this is something I know where communists today, they get kind of, um, you know, they, they get kind of weird about this because some people will claim that the USSR was imperialist, you know, during this time. Now, we know that dependency is an aspect of imperialism um, that definitely results from it. But I personally wouldn't consider the USSR imperialist as there weren't institutions of finance capital in the USSR. However, I will agree that the USSR appears to have been using its comparative advantage towards their benefit over the over the socialist countries which were in alliance with them. 
but we can look at you just mentioned like the Warsaw Pact and such. There was other countries who were complaining about similar things. Um, I know Romania. Uh, I think the plan was for them to mostly produce grain, and of course that would benefit the USSR. But they would have been a, just a one commodity kind of country, and that caused Romania to split off, for the most part, from like the USSR, and they actually became cl closer with China during that time. So there was other countries um, noticing this kind of thing. Right. The you know and and the the. And Mao would be very, very explicit about this later when he gives his three worlds theory. Mm -hmm, right. Uh, so, uh, I mean, from a Chinese point of view, you know, whether or not you agree with that interpretation of what the Soviet Union was doing, my, my point is simply that that's what they're starting to think in Beijing. Mm -hmm, right. And they're starting to worry that the Russians were maybe doing this on purpose, or maybe it was just doing the Russians were doing what, what served their interest, right? And it did have some benefit for China, but it was also risking uh, sovereignty. In other words, if, you're, if your main legitimacy is that you're providing a solution to the question of Chinese sovereignty, and that's the main legitimacy of the party at that point, but you're actually in 1953 through the first five-year plan actually losing control of that sovereignty and, and putting, uh, giving that power to the Soviet Union in some respect, then that's a, that's a dangerous uh, uh, position. So then this leads us uh, to how the this is uh, 53, 56, 56, they start to worry and they start trying to figure out, okay, what, how do we correct this mistake? Mm -hmm. Right. And the answer to this correction or the, the answer to this problem, what the correction will be is the Great Leap. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the Great Leap is really an attempt to do what they think that they should have done in their first five-year plan but didn't do, but they also can't abandon what they've already initiated in the first five-year plan because too much is invested. They've, mm -hmm. and, and too much is invested in, in two respects. One, the capital investment, but also the propaganda investment. You know, these all these big uh, factory works and, and infrastructure works, these have been stuff that they've been promoting in their propaganda to support their legitimacy as as the new rulers of China. So you can't abandon these projects. But there's a third reason, which is you actually need these factories and you actually need this infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So you you can't afford to, to quit it um, uh, and you, you do actually need it. But you also have to do what you should have done in the first place, right? right? And what that is, is radical uh, reform of agriculture. Mm. So the initial uh, five-year plan that was more Soviet-orientated, would, would you say that that lacked focus on agriculture? It did. It focused, it, it skewed heavily towards uh, um, infrastructure and heavy industry. And the problem with this is that they're capital-intensive, they're technology-intensive, and they have no less than a 20-year period before you begin to see returns on your investment. Mm -hmm. And if you're a country that's trying to feed yourself, you don't have food security, you don't have any, you only have one friend. Uh, the last thing that uh, uh, Chiang Kai-shek or Jiang jae did before he left China was load all the gold on the plane and take it off and we're still on the gold reserve. You've got no money, all you, all, and 90% of your economy is, is agriculture. What do you need to do 
you know, you need food security, you need to reform your agriculture, you need food security, and you need to realize surpluses, not just food security, but surpluses from your agriculture so that you can finance your development, so that you're not dependent on a foreign power, both to feed you, but also to finance your development, because you're going to lose something if that's the case, right? You're going to be under their control. So that's what the Chinese are starting to come into to, to view in 1956. And they start to become suspicious that the Soviet Union might have had nefarious uh, intent, in part because the secret speech caused them so much trouble. Um, and this is where you begin to see um, the real beginning of the Sino-Soviet split in 56. Now, um, some people talk about the Hundred Flowers campaign. I don't want to go too far into that, mm -hmm. uh, except to say uh, I suspect I suspect that the Hundred Flowers campaign is something that we see from Mao Zedong, uh, and uh, then and later, where there's a deliberate tactic where you uh, expose your potential enemies, you let them pull their head up, and then you take them down mm -hmm. before you move into so it's a strategic uh, uh, maneuver so uh, th there are a lot of people who suspect this I don't have a strong position on it what I want to say is this that the that the Great Leap is really uh, an attempt to to run two five-year plans simultaneously the five year the first the, the, the they have to continue the the the, the five-year plan or the, the what would have been the second five-year plan related to the industrial development but they also need to now uh, completely reform their agriculture okay now in in communistic terms uh, in Marxist or socialistic terms we like to use the word collectivize right? right but in the West they like to use the word corporatize no all right and uh, I think it was David Harvey who, you know, uh, don't listen to David Harvey when he talks about China. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but uh, Harvey has some some good points, and uh, you know he he talks at, at great length about Lenin's fascination with Henry Ford and Fordism. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, what we know is that uh, Lenin was fascinated with this and believed that he could take these insights and bring them to the Soviet Union and begin to realize certain efficiencies uh, that would allow the Soviet Union to, to push past uh, its competitors. Um, we see the first so-called Great Leap taking place in, in the Soviet Union in agriculture, the collectivization of agriculture. And what this is really trying to do is bring the industrial corporate model to agricultural production. Now, in communist speak, we don't call it that because that's a no-no, right? But in other words, collectivization is a form, is the communistic form of corporatization, where you're going to turn this agricultural work into a factory style or industrial style to realize your economies of scale, to realize your efficiencies and your investments, to maximize your outputs. Okay, mm -hmm. and that's what China is going to try to do, starting with collectivization, with the Great Leap Forward. We're going to take the limited amount of resources we have. We're going to reform and try to make uh, uh, our agricultural work much more efficient. We're going to try to then 
feed ourselves and realize surpluses. And we're going to try to do all of this in five years because we have to to survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, I think that's a good point about um, definitely about collectivization and the way that we normally talk about it. Um, you know, because industrialization, that's going to be like the biggest change. I and mean, for the most part, besides bringing the families together and such. Um, I, quick question, just from what I've read before. Um, so the, the communes and like the collectivization that occurs, that is during the, um, around the time of the Great Leap, correct? Right. Now I've read from certain sources that this apparently began as something of an organic movement where peasants were joining um, these on their own volition in the beginning and the party kind of had to catch up to the peasant commune movement. I'm not sure if you're aware of this um, claim or not, but do you get what I'm referring to? Well, what you had in China is you had uh, a lot of different communities and areas that were doing different things. And um, um, I have no doubt that there were people who were experimenting with this. And even Mao, Mao Zedong saw a little bit of this happening in 1926 when he went down to Hunan and did the the investigation when you had the the peasant uprising there, mm. um, and uh, you did have um, you did have some of that happening, but the the main model of land reform that that was taking place um, in the communist areas uh, when they were initially liberating those areas and, and establishing control, and this is even before they've finished the civil war, is um, um, individual family control. Uh, so it had been, you know, these larger farms that had been under landlords. Um, and you had seen this incredible, incredible suppression and, or depression of, of productivity. And then with the land reform, where the land was divvied up by the communists to families, you saw a significant increase in grain production, but not enough to feed the nation or to realize, you know, of course, the surpluses. So this then becomes the major push. Um, and the, 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 the thing that, that the, the, the uh, sort of hidden uh, history uh, of, of the Great Leap that the party never talks about um, because, and they don't talk about it for two reasons. One, because um, the party is very sensitive to the ultra left mm -hmm. and they don't want to give any face to the ultra left. Uh, in part because the Great Leap is not actually an ultra-left movement. It's 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 described by by the West and by the ultra-left as an ultra-left movement, but in fact it isn't. It's really trying to realize uh, those those uh, returns so they can shore up sovereignty. Um, but the second reason they don't talk about it is because uh, it was a terribly difficult time. It was a terribly painful time. And generally, the rule in China is, uh, if we can avoid talking about things that are going to upset a lot of people that are highly contested, plus we also don't want to talk about it because it's still very debatable in terms of ideology, even within the party, let's just not talk about it. But there are two basic facts, two two very difficult things for us to struggle with as, as Marxists, as communists, in, in looking at uh, that period. The first is, and, and we don't want to, you, you, you should never underestimate the, the importance of this. Mao was, was considered in his time to be a man who was fairly progressive with respect to women's rights. Mm -hmm. Okay, We wouldn't describe him today as being, 
you know, the the beacon of, of feminism. But in his own time, there are a few other leaders who are who are comparably uh, predisposed towards towards gender equality. Um, and although we had some movements in the party and in, in some limited areas for gender equality, the first national movement for women's liberation takes place in the midst of the of the Great Leap. Okay. And this is a, a major this this is a major milestone. So when we look at women's movements, when we look at uh, the liberation of women, the education of women, the inclusion of women in the workforce, all of this in the modern period dates to that time period. Okay. Mm. Um, and um, I've trained a lot of feminists, and I've worked with a lot of feminists in China, and they all recognize this as a as a as an incredible uh, opening for women. The second point, and this is this is a lot harder to swallow, is that um, we have a lot of famine and we have a lot of deaths that take place during the Great Leap, and of course we have the other narratives about the four pests or the the um, you know the the uh, pig iron backyard kilns. Mm -hmm. uh, these are these are you know problematic, but um, these are tangential to the main story. The main story is that um, uh, in a few places we had extraordinary famine, mm -hmm. right? Now famine had been part of the Chinese experience for quite some time um, because the country had been in decline and had faced a number of, of uh, difficulties. And it's likely that famine would have continued even under the best of circumstances if they had not, because they were already not producing enough food for themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So they were already famine vulnerable. Um, but there were some extraordinary outbursts of famine uh, during the Great Leap. However, most of them took place in one province. Mm. Was most of the famine deaths occurred in Anhui. And uh, whether this was because of uh, a unique intersection of uh, climate conditions uh, and poor provincial uh, management or uh, other factors, um, that's where, you know, so, so yes, there was this major problem, but we have to put that problem in context, mm -hmm. okay? The second point is, and this is, this is where things get really strange in terms of the narrative, they radically transformed 90% of their economy in three or four years. And in 1961 and 62, when Liu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping are tasked with reforming the system, not overthrowing it, not reversing it, but making relatively modest reforms to it, mm -hmm. it then produces food security and the surpluses that China will use to finish building out its basic infrastructure and industrial base. Okay. Okay. And that's that's the the thing that that is difficult. In other words, this was not the massive reversal and loss, right? In fact, uh, this is there was something that was tremendously positive, not just women's liberation, but this complete transformation uh, with really an unprecedented historical uh, speed, right? Where you do radically alter, you do gain that food security, you do gain those surpluses, and this will be used and kept largely in place 
until the 1980s, the mid, the mid to the late 1980s, when we begin to see uh, uh, China now has the capacity to reform, to, to put in place new reforms that mm -hmm. will change this, this form of agriculture. Right, right. And, I, you know, I've heard this argument made in different ways that basically the Great Leap succeeded in building a foundation for the country in a way. Is, would that be a correct, uh, um, was that how you would phrase it or? I would say that uh, I would say that's absolutely the case, but you know, but specifically, uh, it it it's what liberated women, yeah, and it's what uh, it's what um, uh, made uh, fed people, uh, mm -hmm. and which is kind of ironic because we we look back on it uh, as a period where people starved, right? And um, I need to check this to make sure I get my facts straight, but if, if there wasn't any other famines after that, there was probably just one or two, if I had to guess, because I don't think there was a cycle of famines recurring after the Great Leap. So you have you have some hunger and some some problems in 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 uh, related to poverty, and you have uh, some weirdness that will take place mm -hmm. uh, at the fringes of the Cultural Revolution, but no no uh, big famines uh, on the order of what. So, and 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 th th that's the other thing. This is kind of the coda. Of famine, right? Um, so, to to continue with the story, the the thing is, um, in 1959, this is the next sort of big. Uh, imp uh, so we, we kind of jump ahead when we talk about Deng Xiaoping and Liu Xiaoqi, but the next the, the the next big moment is 59, and this is the moment when China is in the worst part of. Uh, uh, the most painful part of the Great Leap, and let's be clear that where the where the famine took place, the primary problem appears to have been um, local government, whether it was local or all the way up to, or, or included the provincial, were not reporting honestly to Beijing. Mm -hmm. Okay, for whatever reason. And the, the suspicion is that um, they were afraid. They were afraid to tell the truth for whatever reason. Uh, and that's a separate conversation. Uh, but that also uh, is ultimately Beijing's responsibility. In other words, there was a failure in leadership. Um, to recognize, at the very least. Well, I, to, to put it, to put it in, in direct terms, the, 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 the Communist Party uh, in China um, was a militant organization. They, they came. They were always part and parcel uh, with uh, the PLA, the, the Red Army, and they had this military culture. Mm -hmm. And this was a command and control culture, culture. And when they take power, they're still operating in that same uh, type of uh, um, executive um, style. Mm -hmm. And um, but when you're now, you know, responsible for an entire country, and you're not just dealing with your own party officials, your own system, your own your own people that you know and trust, but now you have to incorporate all these other elements. Um, you're you're used to giving orders, um, but those who are not used to receiving orders don't necessarily know how to speak truth to power. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this so uh, I would suggest that uh, that uh, in all likelihood you had local officials who were who had been given targets and goals and they didn't know how to tell Beijing we can't meet them you know um, 
because they were afraid that they would be um, assessed negatively. Uh, and, and maybe that was legitimate fear, but, but ultimately it is, it is a leadership failure. And although we might isolate it largely to one or two provinces, uh, that failure falls on, on Beijing's shoulders. Well, one of the things that you have to keep in mind is, is the, the party at that time has, has found itself succeeding despite all indications that they would fail. You know what I mean? Like uh, you're a young man, uh, relatively speaking. And so uh, one of the biggest challenges you face as a, as a young person is, uh, I mean, if you're out there pushing the limits, is discovering what your limits are, mm. right? What are my limits? How, how far can I push myself? When do I break down, right? Uh, uh, how much can I drink or smoke or eat and party and, you know, study or... Uh, how much can I work uh, and before I start to see not only diminishing returns but a breakdown and I think that in the case of the Chinese Revolution they were not yet fully aware what their limits were <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean you've you've won this incredible revolution against all odds mm -hmm. what are what are, what is the limit and and if you look at the historical capacity of the Chinese people what are the limits of the Chinese people? These are things. So, um, but this is not to say that they were completely unrealistic or unconnected from reality. Um, we know that by the time that the that the word of the famine started to reach Beijing, they immediately made adjustments. Mm -hmm. But the problem with famine is that it's a slow building problem. But when you when it's there, it's hard to reverse immediately. Okay, and so by the time it becomes clear to Beijing, it's already devastating because it 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 immediately kills the the weak, um, but then it, it undermines other people's immune system, mm -hmm. and then you start to see, you know, disease claiming and and so um, um, this is something that they got um, that they lost control of, and. Uh, um, then struggled to to rectify, but the key date here is uh, 1959, when they have this conference to try to figure out how to fix the problem, right? So 59 is important for three things. One is this conference where the uh, certain changes in leadership are going to take place that are going to set the table for the Cultural Revolution. Second, that's the year that the CIA enters Tibet mm. and sparks the Tibetan uprising. And we, this isn't a conspiracy theory. This has been declassified. Yeah. The Dalai Lama has said in press, you know, the biggest mistake he ever made was getting in bed with the CIA. The mm. CIA sparked the revolution in Tibet. And then the third thing that happened is that the Soviet Union, right after the Dalai Lama fled to India, the Soviet Union invited the Dalai Lama to Moscow. And um, this was um, an absolute, you know, so the, the break the statement is a pretty obvious statement. Oh, it was it was it was infuriating to Beijing. It was completely under. And so it, it convinced Beijing that the Soviets were always interested in undermining Chinese sovereignty. Um, and you have to keep in mind that, that Tibet, right, Tibet and Afghanistan, you know, 
for for a uh, hundred years before the Soviet Union. This was part of the great game between uh, old Imperial Russia and uh, the UK, trying to gain control over these two places. Whoever controls Tibet could uh, exert control over China because it's the high ground. It's also where the the headwaters of your of your uh, rivers that that irrigate your rice uh, start. So you can. Whoever controls Tibet controls China, and this is why Tibet is of, a, of such high strategic importance to, to China, and also why the Red Chinese let Mongolia go. Because uh, you know it's interesting that the, the 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 nationalists in Taiwan, their maps still still show uh, Mongolia as being part of of China. Mm. Uh, the Red uh, the, the communists let it go because they wanted that buffer between them. They wanted a weak state buffer between them and the Soviet Union. In other words, their strategic uh, position their sovereignty was uh, improved by letting Mongolia go, but Tibet is is uh, non-negotiable. Whoever holds the highland uh, has a strategic advantage, uh, and uh, uh, the communists knew this. The nationalists knew it before. That's why they waged the Sino-Tibetan War before the communists took power, um, and uh, that's why the the UK and and Russia struggled for so long to gain control. Uh, and this is precisely why the United States lit the match there in '59. So that's the, the the other big event. But then the Lushan Conference in '59, where they're trying to figure out how to recover uh, from the problems associated with uh, the Great Leap. And the decision there is that um, uh, Lu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping will be put in charge of implementing some reforms, and Mao Zedong will step back from government, but not from the party. So he'll remain the chairman. He'll remain the head of the standing committee. right? But the day-to-day -day governance will now be uh, put under the, the leadership of Lu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping. Mm -hmm. And again, though, they implement relatively modest reforms. But the other thing is, in, in 59, there's another key development. And that's the, the fall of Peng Dehuai, the, the, the general, and where he's replaced with Lin Biao, right? And this is, um, you know, why does Peng fall? And, and there are a lot of different theories. Uh, one of them is that uh, Peng made the mistake of thinking that anyone could be apolitical. You know, Punk thought his credentials were were uh, military, that he didn't, that he was apolitical, that he didn't really care about politics, that all he cared about was the the well-being of the nation. But this is this is ridiculous. No, no person who who has a, a sophisticated understanding of reality can understand that their position can be apolitical, especially if you're the you know a marshal in the PLA. Uh, so that's kind of silly. Others point to the fact that uh, Punk. Um, uh, allowed Mao's son to be killed in Korea, and that this was uh, uh, some sort of vengeance. Uh, I would discount that, uh, but some people point to this. Um, if if I could jump in, I, I know I've heard it claimed that Peng Dehuai was uh, more sympathetic to the Soviets. Is that we're going to come to that okay. in a bit? Uh, but yes, this is a this is something. That uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, Mao is targeting him, I think. Uh, but also, um, um, Mao has another objective in mind, and that is 
um, uh, Mao is thinking strategically, and, and you have to you have to understand that Mao is is a man of two specific forms of genius, um, rare genius in human history. The first is is a capacity for organization, uh, the the way that he built the base areas. Um, um, while the, the, the urban communists were, were misled by the Soviet Union, firstly with the, with the uprising in 27 and 28 where they were devastated, uh, while Mao's in the countryside building base areas and uh, the Moscow-led communists are making fun of him. And then where do they retreat to, you know? Uh, and then when they, they make again the, the tragic mistake to, to try to defend the Jiangxi Soviet and they end up losing that, and they have to do the breakout and then start the long march. And that's when, in the middle of that, and uh, they have the the, uh, the conference uh, to where, where Zhou Enlai breaks with the Moscow-affiliated uh, Marxist and uh, communist, Chinese communist and um, throws his weight behind Mao Zedong. Mm -hmm. There are basically three factions in the party at that point, and, and Zhou was the, the kingmaker, and he, he swung his faction behind Mao. And that's when things change. Mm. But uh, aside from this, uh, what we have to go back to is in 59, uh, apparently, if we follow some of the stories, Peng comes to Mao and says, listen, you know, it's part of our tradition that we have to self-criticize. And because of what's happened and some of the worst problems associated with the Great Leap, you're going to need to to do uh, self-criticism. Now, I don't know if you've ever observed a self-criticism. I've, I've actually observed several mm -hmm. in China. And the way they start is that a senior party leader uh, starts with a incredibly powerful criticism of all the things that, that you have done wrong and all the ways. And, and, um, and then you have to answer that criticism. You have to answer that criticism by acknowledging the mistakes that you've made and talk about the way you're going to correct your actions. And this was the tradition in the party and um, and so you need some figure who can if you're going to have that criticism session you need some figure who can do that criticism of Mao and, and apparently Peng comes to Mao and says listen I'll do it for you but I'll go kind of soft on you right and then you know so you can preserve face and Mao uh, again you know this is questionable sources mm. but Mao says okay and then Peng does this and then Ma Mao turns on him and says this is a form of right opportunism, mm. which lends itself then to this reading of the Great Leap as a leftward or a leftist yeah. movement, right? Because Mao's going to then attack the critics as being rightist or right opportunist. Mm -hmm. um, but Mao's real objective, I think, here is precisely what he achieves, which is uh, he pushes um, Lin Biao into uh, Peng. So the, the deal is Mao will withdraw from the daily running of government, of policymaking, but the trade-off is his man will now be in charge of the PLA. Okay, yeah. Um, I guess maybe just like explain that a little bit because I know when people talk about Mao stepping, to, um, taking a step back at least, um, that is normally phrased at least here in the west when we read about the kind of history this kind of history they'll say that this is because the party recognized that mao made great mistakes during the great leap so they made him step down um but what would you say actually led to mao you know recognizing okay i need to step back what what influenced that moment 
Um, was it because there was some mistakes or was it um, or was there something else there? To be honest with you, from the from the historical perspective, uh, the method, the, the dialectical historical materialism that I'm using, mm-hmm. um, we have to be careful not to be too distracted by petty politics. Yeah. By the small narrative. Mm-hmm. What we have to look at is what are the what are the larger historical uh, factors driving all of these things, right? What are the underlying real desperate conditions? What are the things that are pushing? And I was there. It's impossible to radically transform 90% of your economy and not have some of the things go off the rails. Right. You know what I mean? Especially when you're pioneering in, in many ways. Right. And, and especially when you're already desperately poor and hungry to begin with. Mm-hmm. And you're a new government. And you're one friend in the world you've now become convinced is screwing you, okay? And in fact, in 59, is absolutely screwing you, okay? So were mistakes made? The, the question is, I think, kind of misleading. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. Mistakes are made every day, okay? When you're dealing with that scale, but, you know, was Mao completely personally responsible for the mistakes in leadership in Anhui province? No. Right. Does he ultimately bear a significant historical responsibility for it? Yes. Right. And if you're a central government and you're posing as a central government that has central control, you better take responsibility. You better not say it wasn't. I'm not responsible. (laughs) I'm not. I didn't control that. And I'm not responsible for it now because that underlying that undermines the fact that you want to be responsible, that you need to be responsible. So. Yes. You, so it, to, to be clear, there's a little bit of a political theater involved where you have to take responsibility. Yeah, because like when you talk about the leader of a communist party, be it general secretary, chairman, these type of people, that that is a big part of their job qualification is they take the brunt of, you know, if the party makes a mistake or something, you know, you're the one that kind of carries all that weight and it's going to come down on you, even though you may not have been personally responsible or you know you're the face of the party in that regard so you it's a part of the do, a job description almost you know the most difficult thing to talk about in in communist history and and forgive me for saying this mm-hmm. the most difficult thing to talk about are the positives associated with stalin mm. <laughs> okay yeah. in other words uh, stalin was 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 a piece of work and and he's a very difficult historical figure and he initiates uh, violence and a cycle of violence that I don't think any of us really want to be apologist for, even though we understand that there were reasons, right? I mean, it's not just that he was wantonly violent or evil necessarily. He might have been, but again, uh, history doesn't history doesn't allow that type of figure to gain that type of. We have this this romanticization that. That, his, that world historical figures like Hitler or Stalin, you know, are able to make the world dance to their tune. But mm-hmm. no, there are bigger forces at work, right? And so, you know, uh, um, there are reasons why um, that level of violence takes place. And, and he, he bears uh, the major responsibility for it. Um, but the same thing with, with, with Mao, but even less. And, and, and I, I say this because so many people 
want to uh, want to equate, especially in the United States, want to equate Hitler, <laughs> Stalin, and Mao Zedong as though they're the you know the three evil yeah. uh, stooges of, of history, and um, and they're talked about very similar similarly. Like when you see the way they're subordinates act towards them and stuff like just the characterization of them yeah is, it's a yeah. complete mis because yeah. mao is, is is a very different person mm -hmm. uh and and chinese marxism especially as mao begins to formulate it in 1937 with uh, his two major uh initial text in chinese marxism uh, uh on contradiction on practice is a repudiation of the Soviet understanding of dialectics. And there's something very different. And one of the things that Mao says later is that, you know, one of the one of the things that we didn't do is we were not as bloody. We we limited violence uh, uh, relative to what the Soviets did, and so we were able because violence begets violence. Once you get that cycle of violence going, it's really hard to stop it. And uh, Mao says, you know, in many cases. You know, we were pushed into violent action because we had to satisfy local bloodlust. You know, there were, local people were angry at landlords, and we had to support them. Otherwise, we would have been yeah. we would have been illegitimate, and they would have killed them anyway. And then we would have we would have been uh, they would have seen us as not being on their side, and 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 we would have lost control. So it was, you know, mm -hmm. so there were these cases where. Um, where some political violence was was necessary in order to consolidate uh, uh, power and to keep faith with uh, popular support. But to get back to uh, coming out of the Great Leap, when we say step back, uh, I suspect that, that Mao um, wants to step back because he doesn't want to be too closely associated with the negatives, mm. Mm -hmm. including the difficulty that's coming with the reforms that Lu Xiaoqi. So, in other words, that's going to sort of again. I'm going to use the word this this word that that we should be suspicious. That's going to complicate his political brand, right? Now his position is secured because his Mao Zedong thought, Mao Zedong Sichuan is already part of uh, um, uh, the party at that point, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like he's just going to disappear. Um, so and and he's still really calling the shots behind the scenes. He's just not responsible for the day-to-day -day management of policy, which, if we're being completely honest, he wasn't completely responsible for, even before he steps back. Mm. Okay. Um, but, you know, what you see are, you know, and, and we don't want to oversell it, um, but, you know, the, um, uh, the, the new economic policy that Lenin puts in place when war communism starts to fall apart and they move into, in the direction of market reforms in, in, in the early 1920s, which are then going to accelerate into and become by the end of the late 1920s, state capitalism in, in the Soviet Union. Um, Mao is, is struggling with this, and he doesn't, he doesn't really want to be close. I don't think he wants to be closely associated with those types of reforms mm -hmm. because he sees them as perhaps necessary, but not, not really desirable in the 
broadest historical sense, right? They're just temporary aberrations. Yeah. So uh, I think he's going to step back because it's politically expedient, but also because he doesn't want to be too closely associated with these reforms that are coming. Also because he's still really in charge and also because it's an opportunity, it's a trade-off where he gets to bring Pung down and put his man and, and, and absolutely shore up his control over the gun, right? As, as Mao likes to say, mm-hmm. um, uh, power grows out of the barrel of the gun and the party controls the gun, the gun doesn't control the party. And so these are, this is what he's putting in place. Now, the next interesting moment, of course, is that the Little Red Book is compiled by Lin Biao, mm-hmm. right? And then it's Lin Biao who begins to develop the practices uh, that are later associated with the Cultural Revolution. He begins to develop those practices in the army, right? Mm. The Mao study groups. Um, and if we if we put this in context, we can say, well, this is where um, where they are perfecting these tools that they will la- later unleash on the rest of society. But um, what I would suggest to you is that what Mao is doing, because as, as I was saying earlier, he's a genius of two sorts, uh, um, organization uh, and strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, very few peers in history in this regard. And so um, uh, this is a, a sort of a silly example, but we know that uh, chess grandmasters, for example, they're thinking on average nine moves in advance, right? Mm. When they're playing a game of chess. But it isn't just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine moves, right? It's each move has a number of potential associated moves with it. And the grandmasters are calculating in some incredible way all those potential moves that would be associated with nine steps, not nine specific moves. Uh, you know, I'm going to move here, one, two, three. But how might I be moving all of my forces and what would be my general trajectory over nine steps of the game? Okay. Mm-hmm. And Mao is, is I think, uh, 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 this type of strategic genius. So he doesn't necessarily know what his eighth or ninth move is, but he does have a strategic vision where he's preparing for and moving towards a certain type of positioning for where he thinks history is going. Okay, mm-hmm. um, And again, uh, if we're looking at this from the dialectical, historical, and materialist perspective, this is legitimate to us because we're Marxist, but it's also legitimate because they're Marxist. And by the way, how are they thinking about history? And how are they organizing their own damn development? It's through dialectical and historical materialism. So this is why it's so important for us to read this history, not just because we're Marxists reading history in a particular way, because we're reading the history of Marxists who are constructing their history in that way, okay? Right. So, uh, you know, what we see then in, in Mao's case is, uh, Within a very short period of time of these reforms being put in place by Lu Xiaoqi and Deng, and Deng Xiaoping, collectivization is is doing what it was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's not the communist utopia that it was, you know, that some people hoped it would be, but it is producing food security, it is producing surpluses, right? But, but, but it isn't 
closing the technology gap that is getting wider between China and its competitors, the United States and the Soviet Union. Right. And China knows this. They know it. They know it very materially, very viscerally. Why? Because China used a half million men to stop the Americans who had a far superior technology base in Korea, right? We know that the Chinese artillery dressed in fake Vietnamese uniforms blasted the French out of Dien Bien Phu in 54 in Vietnam, right? And then we know from then onward up until the late 1960s, the Chinese are supporting the Vietnamese in Vietnam against uh, after the French leave against the Americans. But increasingly, their capacity to support the Vietnamese is falling, right? Mm. Why? Because all of those massive information age investments that started accelerating during World War II, you know, you have about a 20 year life, uh, a 20 year uh, uh, cycle from innovation to fielding it in, in a military, in an effective military way. So in the 60s, you're starting to see all that stuff that they were just starting to dream about and develop in the 40s, now reaching the battlefield in in uh, uh, Vietnam. And yeah. Chinese tech is not able to address that problem, right? So you could mass before and deal with the tech gap, but it's no longer working in the 60s in Vietnam and the Chinese know it. Now we can symbolize this or we can, we can sort of label it with um, uh, a historical um, uh, realization um, known as Moore's Law. And I think this was 64, 65. Uh, uh, Moore, who was the co-founder of Intel, of what became Intel, uh, wrote a paper where he, uh, where there's a, a specific form of Moore's Law, but then there's the general form. And the general form is that uh, technology in the information age advances at an exponential rate. Mm. Okay, And what this means is if your competitor has a clear technological advantage and he's investing, he's still investing in R&D and pushing that forward, it's almost impossible for you to close the gap if you're just competing head to head. In other words, you got to find some way where you get access to that technology um, and where you can, you know, because you, you can't just catch up because he's moving too fast, okay? Mm. So this is what I think that China, so despite all the sacrifices that they've made in the Great Leap, despite all the successes that no one likes to talk about in the from the Great Leap, it's not enough. The gap mm. is still getting wider and they know this given their their fight in Vietnam. Okay, and so this is where I think you start to see uh, Mao and his strategic genius uh, thinking about how we're going to deal with this problem. Okay, mm -hmm. and I don't think so. I don't think that Mao clearly has everything figured out, but he's. I think he's moving to make certain things possible, so that he has the flexibility to move the country. So he's, he's starting to set the table, but he's not clear who's coming to dinner and what's going to be served. Okay, this is the, 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 the analogy I'll use. 
And so this is where we get to um, uh, the Cultural Revolution. And that was part one of our interview with Professor Joseph Gregory Mahoney. And at the end of the week, part two will be released and we'll cover the Cultural Revolution. All right, thanks.